Tonight we're going to go to the book of Luke, chapter 22, as we look towards uh, later on in our service when we'll observe the Lord's Supper. I thought it would be good, a good thing for us tonight to look at this passage and towards the end of Jesus' life as he establishes this ordinance for us tonight, um, or, or as he did that night, and we observe it this evening. Um, one of the things I, I think about sometimes is we sing hymns like we just sang tonight, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. And you understand that from the outside looking in, Christianity, um, following Jesus Christ, is a very bloody religion. I mean, we sing songs about that. Have you ever noticed that? Like, if you grew up in church, maybe you don't notice it as much. But, but from the outside looking in, well, they sing a lot of songs about blood and shedding people's blood. And what does this mean? Because that is a vital and important thing to our faith. Jesus shed his blood on the cross. But I think it's important for us to, to step back and look at what does that mean and what did Jesus do for us. I mean, that's what, that's what the Lord's Supper is about. And that's what we're going to look at tonight, this idea of, of what Jesus said in Luke 22, that he would be given for you or given for us. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20, we read this. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is broken for you, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Father, we are so grateful now to open your word for a few minutes and see what you have for us here tonight. Lord, we pray that you would give us fresh understanding of these things, help us to fully see. Uh, what is the Lord's Supper again in our hearts and minds? I mean, we have heard it many times over and seen it. And Lord, would you fill us with um, awe in these things and convict our hearts tonight uh, that we may honor you and glorify you and may we uh, see you afresh um, as our Savior and Lord tonight. In your name we pray, amen. So throughout Jesus' ministry, he showed himself to be the fulfillment of God's prophecies. Um, that was that we've seen over and over again in the life of Jesus, that he fulfilled directly the prophecies that were given in the Old Testament. But he wasn't just the fulfillment of the prophecies. He was also the fulfillment of the pictures of, of what we saw in the Old Testament. Um, if, you, if you've been paying attention the last couple of weeks on uh, Sunday mornings, we've been talking about Jesus as the what? Okay, this is where we find out who's paying attention. Okay, the bread of life, right? And the picture that Jesus uh, was fulfilling there is, is what they kept going back to, the manna in the wilderness, right? They kept bringing this up, that Moses had given the manna, and, and what are you going to do? And Jesus says that, that he is the bread that has come down from heaven. And he is a fulfillment of a, of a greater picture, of a shadow of the things in the past. He is 
the, the, he is the, the real thing. And, of course, he fulfilled the law of God as well. He made that, that, that great statement where he said, I think that I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. On the night of Jesus' betrayal and his arrest, he, he once again showed his disciples one of these great fulfillments. He took the Passover feast, which was a feast vital to the Jewish faith, and he transformed its meaning forever. We see in this passage Jesus given for us, and we observe the Lord's Supper as we are commanded by him. And what we see here is the Lord's Supper is established by Jesus as a memorial of his sacrifice and anticipation of his return and a call for a consistent or to a consistent walk in him. Those are the three things we're going to look at tonight as we get to the end of the passage. But you're going to see the, the looking back, the looking ahead, and the looking within of our own hearts and lives that's vital to this. But here in verses 14 through 18 of Luke 22, you, you have what's really the last Passover ever to be held. And, and so let's look at the, the process of this. So it says, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And what they were doing is they were sitting down to observe this feast. Now, the, the Passover was a most important annual feast on the Jewish calendar. And we read, as we've studied the book of John on Sunday mornings, we read about how people would throng to Jerusalem during this time, how Jesus himself would go to Jerusalem to worship God during this time, and, and families would gather to hold this feast together. It was a wonderful time of year because this was the celebration of, of God liberating his people from the land of Egypt. Um, all throughout this first part of the book of Exodus, you read about how God, this, God's people long to be free from their enslavement, and God sends Moses to bring this about. And, and, and when it finally happens, the night that it happens, they observe, is called Passover. And, and this feast then is instituted to be held annually to remember these things. And in Jesus' love for his disciples, as a, he longed to take part in this feast with them because Jesus, as a Jew, observed this feast as was commanded by God. And when Jesus says here that with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is Jesus expressing his compassion and his love for his disciples, how he longed to be with them. He longed to tell them what was coming. He longed to strengthen them in himself. Because Jesus knew the hour of his suffering for the sin of mankind was near. Therefore, he longed for this time with his disciples. And so we, have seen, we see they have entered what is, what is known as the upper room for what is commonly called the Last Supper. And we observe immediately that there's a change that has taken place from the first Passover that was held all the way back in Egypt to now. I mean, you notice there um, that, that he and his disciples or his 12 apostles were there with him. And we know that, that what they were doing is they were reclining there at the table to observe that meal. That was not the way that it was done the first night of the Passover. You know why? Because they had to be ready to leave Egypt. So they weren't reclining. And this is, this is by the way, how, how these meals were, were held back then. That there would be a low table and you would, you would recline while you ate there. You don't sit in a chair, but you would, you would kind of lay on the floor with your feet out behind you. Um, and, 
and you would kind of be on your side. But, but when the first Passover was observed, the people had to be ready to leave the land of Egypt. So they stood and they ate and they, and they were ready to go at any time. And here, this meal now has turned into a celebration and a looking back of those things. And, and really, it would take hours to complete this meal as people enjoyed one another's presence there with their family or those that they were eating with. And so the Passover meal consisted of several stages. I don't know how familiar you are with the Passover and what all went into that. So I just want to give you a brief overview so to help us understand the context of what's, understand, of what's going on here that night. So the meal would open with a prayer of thanksgiving to God. And then the first of what would be four cups of diluted red wine would be served And this was known as the cup of blessing. And after everyone partook of that, a ceremonial washing of the hands would take place. And this symbolized a need for a cleansing from sin. And it may be here, by the way, at this time of the, of the washing of the hands, that some believe that this is where the disciples' discussion about who was greatest in the kingdom of God, and then Jesus washing his disciples' feet, some believe this is where that would take place, because we know that Jesus rose from supper to do that. We read that in John chapter 13. And we read here in Luke and, and in Matthew this discussion that takes place um, about the, who would be the greatest. Um, Luke it doesn't deal with that until um, verse 24, but, but we think that what Luke is doing here isn't necessarily giving us a chronological view of supper, but he's separated these things into sections or uh, topics to help us understand what, what, what went on that night at the, Lord's, at the Last Supper. So after that, after that washing of the hands, those at the feast would then partake of bitter herbs and pieces of bread dipped in paste that was made from fruit and nuts. And that was done to symbolize Israel's uh, time in Egypt and slavery, to remind them of the hardships of slavery and the life uh, they had in Egypt. And that lesson, by the way, didn't always stick, did it? Because you read in Numbers chapter 14 that they would much rather go back to Egypt than enter the promised land where all of those um, giants and strong cities are. And then after that, all who were gathered there around the table would sing Psalms 113 and Psalm 114. These are the first of two, there's a section of the Psalms known as the Halal. And the Halal would be sung throughout the night, and the first two of these would be sung at this section. And then it was followed by a second cup of wine. Then... The father, or whoever the head of the table was, in this case, Jesus, would then explain the meaning of the Passover right before the serving of the main meal. And the serving of the main meal is the roasted sacrificial lamb and the unleavened bread. Following that came the drinking of the third cup of wine. They would sing then Psalms 115 to 118, which is the rest of the hello. And then the fourth cup of wine was passed around. And this was done every year. And it was a significant time in the lives of the Israelites. I told, we, we said a couple of weeks ago, um, when we looked at um, Jesus feeding the 5,000, that the people who were gathered there were filled with, with a lot of nationalistic pride because it was the time of Passover. It was the time that God had released them from their bondage in Egypt. And so people look forward to this every year. 
And so that's kind of the, the process by which this went on. So, so un, you can understand now coming to this passage, this is what the disciples are anticipating. I mean, this is what they've grown up doing. They, they've observed Passover with their family. Probably, you know, uh, uh, well, depending on how old you are, that's how many times, right? I was going to say countless times, but you really could count them because it's every year. Annually, they observe this. And now let's talk about the meaning. What is the meaning of the Passover? Well, the meaning was, the, the Passover was instituted on the night that Israel left Egypt. It was a night of the 10th plague. God, in his judgment on Egypt for the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, sent 10, ten plagues on the nation of, of Egypt. And each one of those plagues decimated part of Egypt's um, economy or life there. And the last plague was not just on Egypt alone, but also stretched out into to the people of God who lived there as well, the Israelites, and it was the killing of all firstborn in the land of Egypt. And God made it very clear, there is only one way to avoid this plague, and that was to follow his strict instructions about a lamb that was to be taken, and it was to be killed, and its blood was to be painted on the doorpost of your house. And when he would see that, the, the, the angel of death would pass over that house, hence the name Passover, right? And so these people gathered, and, and they celebrated that night those things, with, and, and they, they, they waited to be released as God had promised them their deliverance. And each year, as people gathered together, they were to be reminded of God's incredible work on his behalf, uh, on their behalf. They were no longer enslaved to Egypt, and now they were, have been delivered to their own land. Now, when you get to Jesus' day and you look back at the history of Israel, that history is, uh, of serving God in their own land could we say is less than stellar all the time, right? They struggled mightily to serve God. You read the book of Judges. You read about the kings and the divided kingdom. And, and, and you read about the, the, the bondage that they were sold into in Assyria and with Babylon. And as they were sinful and abandoned God and paid dearly for that. But even in that, God brought them back to their land. Now, and at the time of Jesus, the Israelites are living, the Jews are living in their land. Now, they are under Roman occupation, but they're living there again in their land. And each year, that Passover lamb that was offered was a reminder. There is a price for sin. There is a price for sin. The message is clear that God delivers his people through the judgment of sin on a substitute. That's what it was all the way back in Egypt, and that's what it was reminding them of then. That that lamb, that innocent lamb, paid the price for the sin of the people. It died in place as a substitute for the firstborn of that house. The lambs, though, could never pay for sin. Otherwise, they would have continued after Jesus Christ. Instead, the Passover, not only did it remind people there's a price for sin, it was also looking ahead to a day when there would be a lamb slain for the sin of mankind. This is the lamb that Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 53, prophesied. 
That is why Jesus came. And as Jesus partook of this feast that night with his disciples, he spoke of another glorious day to come. We see not only the meaning behind these things, but we see the future fulfillment that Jesus speaks of. He says in in verse 16, For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus made it clear that on this night, all official God-sanctioned Passovers on this earth are over. They're done. This is the last time until Christ's kingdom is fully established that this will happen. Jesus says then that he will eat this meal again and drink of the fruit of the vine again. Ezekiel describes this in his events in the millennial kingdom of Jesus. In Ezekiel chapter 45, verse 21, he says, In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you shall observe the Passover, a feast of seven days, unleavened bread shall be eaten. And this is talking about in the millennial kingdom, in the reign of Jesus Christ. You say, well, why is there a Passover there? Most likely, it is looking back to what Jesus did on the cross, not looking ahead for what he would do. We also know that there will be a feast in God's kingdom establishing his rule. In Revelation 19.9, that he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And so in this kingdom, Jesus will partake of these things once again. And that is an encouragement to his disciples when Jesus speaks of these things. For he has told them, He's already told them, leading up to this passage that we're in tonight, that that his death is coming. And so Jesus, already having told his disciples that he would die, now tells them that he is going to eat this with them again in his kingdom that is to come. And these disciples then will observe that death very shortly and they will they they but they will be looking ahead to the future messianic kingdom when his people will reach their rest. But this is the last Passover. Jesus' death will negate the need for any such observance or animal sacrifice. And sure, there are those who still observe Passover, but they do not do so in the plan of God. Instead, Jesus will fulfill God's promises on this night that he gives to his disciples here. The shadows of the things in the past will be fully revealed in Jesus Christ. And now, during this last Passover, what Jesus does is he takes it and establishes a new ordinance that we as a church continue to observe under his command. We look at verses 19 and 20, and we see now, we've seen the last Passover, but we see now the last, or the, the new ordinance. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. We see the process here that that after the singing of the first part of the Hillel, when the meal was to be partaken, Jesus now begins to institute what we call the Lord's Supper. Here, Jesus takes bread, which would have been unleavened bread as part of the Passover feast. He blesses and breaks it. 
using it to symbolize his body, to be given for you, he says. And one must wonder what the disciples thought at a time like this. I mean, remember what I said, that they've grown up, they're Jewish men, they've grown up their whole life um, observing the Passover. And no one's ever done this before. No one's ever taken this bread and broken it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Because there's never been one like Jesus before. He's the Messiah. He's the, Messiah. He's the Redeemer. This is an incredible sight. And this is an incredible night in which they partake of these things, yo, though they have not fully understood these things yet. And then things seem to proceed as usual until the time of, of either the third or those fourth cups of wine that are taken. And it's here that Jesus again replaces what has always been done with another new practice, telling his disciples that this cup is, is his blood that is shed for them. The Passover, Jesus is making very clear, is going away. And in its place now is the Lord's Supper. And its meaning is incredible. So, so that's the process of these things. But the meaning behind these is found in what Jesus says and in what he will do. Notice, when Jesus breaks the bread, he, he says, this is my body, which is what? Given for you. He doesn't say broken. You understand that, the, that, the, that was, it, was, it was prophesied in Scripture and fulfilled in Jesus Christ that not a single bone of his body was broken in his death. Instead, when he says, this is my body which is given for you, he is highlighting something we just talked about a few minutes ago. He is highlighting the substitutionary nature of his death. Remember what I said about the lamb? The lamb died as a substitute. It took the place on that night of the firstborn in that house, right? Because there's a price for sin. There's a price that God says. Jesus says, I am the one who's being given in your place as the substitute for you. And we must understand that this is a voluntary giving of himself. Jesus is not having his life taken from him, but he is willingly submitting himself to the excruciating physical death on the cross that lies before him because of his boundless compassion as God for all mankind. Jesus then offers not only his body to be given, but his blood to be shed. Or another way to translate that where he says, this is my my." blood which is shed for you, another literal way of translating it, which is poured out for you. It is poured out for the sin of mankind. And in so doing, what Jesus is doing there is ratifying a new covenant. The old covenant, the covenant of the law that God gave to his people, you know how that covenant was ratified? It was ratified by the the blood of animals that was shed. We read about that in Exodus, that Moses, they, they, they slaughtered the animals, and Moses sprinkled the blood of those animals on the people as they ratified the covenant with God. And now Jesus says that in order to ratify the the covenant, not of law, but the covenant of grace that is in me, I will shed my blood to ratify that covenant. He is preparing to initiate the covenant of grace that is sealed and secured 
by his own shed blood as the spotless lamb of God. The covenant of law, in that covenant of law, animals atoned for Israel's sin but could never take it away. But in Jesus, sin will be taken away for all who trust in him. So the Lord's Supper is a time of remembrance and reflection. It is a time of celebration and solemn thanksgiving. And the Lord's Supper is a memorial. It's not a re-sacrifice. See, that's the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, there would be a sacrifice made for sin. Now, some of those sacrifices were personal. People would bring these things to the tabernacle, later on to the temple, and offer these things for their sin. But guess what happened the next time you committed a sin? Guess what you needed to do? You had to go back and bring a sacrifice. You had to re-offer a sacrifice. Or on the Day of Atonement that was held every year, when, I, when, when, when the, the, the goat would be offered for the sins of the people, the scapegoat would be let out into the wilderness, the other would be sacrificed, and the blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. Guess what would happen a year later? They would do it all over again. What Jesus was doing was offering himself once for all. And so this notion, I, I alluded to it this morning, and we talked about it a little bit this morning about this as we looked at that passage in John, that, that somehow the elements of the Lord's Supper become the body and blood of Jesus makes zero sense in the covenant of grace in God because Jesus has already been offered and he's resurrected. There is no need to do that again. There is no need for, for a physical or spiritual presence of his body and blood to be in the bread and juice. However, they are taken in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. And they should give us a proper view of Jesus' work and ourselves. Let's close tonight with a proper, some proper views from the Lord's Supper. I alluded to them when we began that there are three things that we see within it. Because when you enter a time of the Lord's Supper is a solemn and wonderful thing. It is serious. It is not to be taken lightly at all, as the Apostle Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But it is also a wonderful time, for it is a celebration of Jesus' work that makes us brothers and sisters in Christ through a relationship with him. Do you understand that without Jesus, we wouldn't have the church? And without Jesus, we wouldn't enjoy the fellowship with one another in the bond of Christ. It is a truly wonderful thing. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to go and maybe you've gone to, on a mission trip or you've gone somewhere else to visit uh, and you visit another church. And you walk in the door and you begin to meet people and you instantly have a connection with people if you're a Christian because you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and they do too. And you may know nothing else about them. You may have nothing else in common with them, but you are brothers and sisters in Christ, and that is possible because of Jesus. It's a truly amazing thing. And so as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes, let us take a threefold look. Number one, as you approach the Lord's Supper, you should take a look back. Let us look back first at what Jesus did for us. Let us reflect on his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus, who is in perfect communion with God the Father from eternity past, humbled himself 
and came to earth for us. He took on a human, temporal body, though still fully God at the same time. He lived with the pangs of hunger, the infirmities of a frail human form, the sting of death, and endured the wiles of temptation. He kept the law of God perfectly and gave himself willingly for you and me. He came to his own and was rejected. He endured the cross, feeling the weight of our sin, separating him from his father. He died for us. He was buried, and he rose again three days later. And in rising from the dead, he wrested Satan's victory away once and for all. And so as you approach the Lord's Supper, take a look back. Look at what Jesus has done for you. And as we look back and remember, we also look ahead and rejoice as we long for eternity. So first, we are look to, to look back. Second, we are to look ahead. One day, Jesus is returning. One day, we will be caught up with him. One day, we'll be made perfect. And one day, sin will be no more. And as we partake of the Lord's table, may our eyes and hearts be filled with hope. We live in an ever decaying body of flesh. How many of you feel that? Right? It wears out a little bit more every day. Let's take it a step further. We live in a world of sin. And how many of you are aware of that? We are beaten down, worn out, And you know what? Sometimes we're just downright discouraged in life because we live in a sinful world and we feel trapped sometimes in a decaying body that gets older and it's harder to do the things we used to do. But we know who wins. It's Jesus. At the end of the day, he wins. We know that Jesus will return, and when he does, he will right all wrongs. We know that he will come for us, and so we look forward to his coming. So as you come to the Lord's table tonight and look back at what he has done, because you can look back and see what he's done, you can look ahead and say, this is what he will do. And as we do so, let us also then lastly tonight examine ourselves. We look ahead, we look behind, we look look back, we look ahead, and then we look within. The solemnity of the supper should cause us to reflect on our own hearts and lives. There's a couple things here. First and foremost, this ordinance of the Lord's Supper is not for unbelievers. If you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is not for you. And that's just the truth from Scripture, that there is no grace to be imparted here. There is no celebration to be had. This is a beckoning to you. Come to Jesus and live. We practice here at our church what we call open Lord's Supper. And what that means is you don't have to be a member of our church to partake of this with us tonight. But you do need to be a part of God's church through salvation in Jesus Christ.
And if you're not sure of this, of this I would advise you to refrain from taking the Lord's Supper. And, and if you are here with us, that, that I or others here would be thrilled to show you from Scripture how you can have a relationship with Jesus that gives eternal life. Second, let us see that all believers should examine themselves tonight before partaking of this supper. The Lord's Supper is not just something we do. It's not just, well, it must be the second, you know, every other month, or it must be, it must be that, that week or this or that, because here we are, we're doing this again. No, it, what it communicates, what, what partaking of the Lord's Supper communicates is it communicates an open, transparent, and right relationship with God. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation of the gospel and a confirmation that there is nothing between God and me hindering the proclamation of that gospel. And as you read through the New Testament, you come to the book of 1 Corinthians and you find that there is a church in Corinth that was struggling. I've said this, I've probably said it before, but you know, you think your church got problems, read the book of 1 Corinthians, okay? They had problems. They were a group of professing believers, a church, and they tolerated sin like nobody else. And Paul, in his letter with them, just deals with sin after sin after sin, seeking their restoration to a proper relationship with God. And in this letter, he warns them how they are to approach the Lord's Supper with hearts, and and they're they're coming and doing the Lord's Supper and and observing it with hearts that are full of undealt sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 32, Paul says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. As a believer, your sin will never take away your salvation, but it will hinder your relationship with God. That is why we must seek forgiveness from God and make these things right with others, and ask God to continue to convict us of our sin. And so as we now prepare to partake in the Lord's Supper, we should take a look within. We should ask God if there is any unconfessed sin in our lives hindering our relationship with him. And understand this, folks, that that conviction of sin, conviction is not a bad word. I think sometimes we think that because we don't, and I understand why you think that, why I think that, why we might think that, because we don't like the feelings that come along with conviction, right? Nobody likes to feel guilty. Nobody likes to feel convicted over something they've done. But we should be thankful for conviction of sin in our lives, that God is showing us things that are wrong. And so conviction is really a wonderful gift from God. And if you can sin and feel no conviction, my friend, you, you have a problem. You either don't know God or you have a very, very strained relationship with God. 
Instead, we should be thankful for God's convicting work. And tonight, if, if you cannot make right what God shows you in your life, perhaps you, you, you take a minute, in just a minute, uh, we're going to have a, a hymn for us to, to take some time and, and, and meditate in our own hearts and ask God to convict us of any sin. And if there's something in your life that either, one, you refuse to make right with God, or two, you think, I, I can't make that right because I, I need to go and do this or that. I need to talk to this person or that person. I just feel like I can't make it right like I should. That's between you and the Lord. Then I would caution you against partaking of this tonight. And, and, and please, don't get me wrong, okay? Nobody's looking around tonight saying, okay, who's a good Christian and who's a bad Christian, okay? If somebody's doing that, by the way, you don't understand why we're here, Okay? This is between you and the Lord. This is a, a celebration together of us, of, of us proclaiming the gospel through these things tonight. In the end, only God knows your heart. And I would admonish you to make sure it's pure before him. Again, I, I'm not asking you if you're perfect. God's not asking you, hey, are you a perfect person? He's asking you, do we have an open relationship? Are you, is everything open and transparent is there anything between you and me? God knows the answer to that. God knows our hearts. And so may God grant us tonight the wisdom to see that, and may we enjoy observing these things together.